thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Miles, recorded in our writer's studio just above the bookshop at Kilometre Zero in Paris. If you enjoy these conversations, there are a few different ways you can support us. First of all, you can leave a rating right now in whatever podcast app you're using. The more ratings we get, the more likely it is that people will discover us. It only takes a few seconds and can really help spread the word. You can also buy books, gifts and apparel from our online store, shakespeareandcompany.com, where you'll find our popular Year of Reading subscription, 12 books handpicked by our dedicated booksellers, shipped to you or a loved one wherever they are in the world. I'll be back at the end, but until then, sit back and enjoy the Shakespeare and Company podcast. A young student moves to a new city for a year-long research fellowship and takes in an apartment led by Pascal, a professor, and Agnes, an artist, who, from time to time and as stipulated in terms of the tenancy, will make use of the adjoining studio when she visits the city. So begins White on White, the extraordinary new novel from Aishagul Savash. As the narrator's path increasingly crosses with Agnes's, readers are treated to the study of a life and a friendship, if that's the right word for it, which, although drawn with clear, precise lines, is also as much shaped and informed by what is withheld from the canvas as by the marks that are laid down upon it. White on White is a book about art and artists, parents and their children, beauty and class, as well as the quest for perfection and the compromises we make in pursuit of it. It's also one of the most affecting and elegantly written novels I've read this year, and I'm delighted to say that Aishagul Savash joins me in the writer's studio to discuss it today. Aishagul, welcome to Shakespeare and Company. Thank you so much. I love that introduction. Oh, well, I, I'm very pleased. <laughs> um, I suppose where I'd like to begin um, is with the apartment that the narrator moves into, um, which when I first started reading about it, it didn't exactly feel like uh, an Airbnb apartment, but it did put me in mind of the many kind of anonymized spaces that I think particularly in the last few years, people have got used to going into, which places which are, are not quite private places, but not quite public places. Um, so could you just talk a little bit about the apartment as the narrator finds it and the effect that it has it's interesting that you want to start there because this for me was the image that that was at the the heart of the book mm. um i had in mind a very sparsely furnished apartment white walls mm. windows open wind streaming and making the the curtains ruffle and i thought this is this is the novel I want to write and I want to live inside this apartment. And this idea of anonymity then came into play because you begin to imagine what sort of lives can be superimposed there and what sort of lives were led there mm -hmm. uh, in the past. And it's, I mean, it's something that I consider in many other aspects of the novel, the, the fact that the narrator is researching nudes mm -hmm. in gothic architecture this um idea of uh sinless or a naive body mm -hmm. onto which we project uh stories and guilt and uh gender mm -hmm. all sorts of narratives i want to come on to the the, the nudes um in a moment because it's in a way for me was one of the most um yes yeah, so convincing portrayals of the academic's mind that I've I found in in literature. But just before we come on to that, just staying with the apartment 
for a moment because it, it, it occupies, this particular apartment occupies a very specific role because, as you said, often when we go into apartments, we can wonder about the lives that were lived there before. Uh, but generally those are closed chapters. The people who lived in an apartment, say the ones we moved into, won't be coming back. Whereas there's very, something very specific about the apartment that the narrator moves into, which is that it was the apartment of Pascal and Agnes. They stripped their life out of it, and yet Agnes still retains a, a, certain, a certain connection to it. And I'm curious about that sort of halfway house in a way, like it, it could, because for me as a reader, it created um, quite an unsettling feeling, actually, that the, that the apartment had been left, but not left entirely. I mean, hearing your description of it, I think that's a lot like uh, how I imagine Agnes as a character as well, that this halfway life of at, at first she appears very elegant and very poised. Uh, but then you begin to wonder if that's the real Agnes mm -hmm. and whether there is something a bit more disturbing beneath that. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it's not like I set out to, you know, make the apartment be an echo of Agnes. But when you create a world and when you create, I think, the, the settings and the atmosphere of the world, then all of the elements of a book do be begin to echo one another. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, as I said in the introduction, Agnes is an artist. And our narrator is an academic, uh, an academic who studies art, but not contemporary art, medieval art. Um, and there's there's a moment where the um, the narrator says um, that, well, I have it here, both approaches, I assured her, the academic as well as the artistic were important in their own ways, though I felt embarrassment at the conventionality of this statement. Um, is there something, do you think, about the the meeting of an academic mind and an artistic mind, which is going to produce this kind of chemistry that we have between the narrator and Agnes? Definitely. There is, uh, there is the narrator who is constantly observing Agnes mm -hmm. and recording Agnes's words and never quite interacting with Agnes mm -hmm. in a emotional way. Yeah. And when Agnes does begin to appear a lot less elegant and less poised, the narrator won't meet her on an on emotional or irrational ground, but will offer very, you know, rational words about what's happening. Ask, would you like me to leave the apartment? Mm -hmm. Or uh, is it okay if I'm in this room? Yeah. And I think uh, Agnes's approach to life uh, has in some way some in some ways been to um to put up with rationality mm -hmm. and her husband also is an academic and to uh allow that he has the superior perspective mm -hmm. when it comes to how they're living when it comes to what one says about art and i think in this novel we see that she's letting go of that or she's fed up with it finally yeah, yeah, yeah. That idea of having the um, superior perspective, I think, is a is a very interesting one. And there you framed it as the sort of the superior perspective of the um, professor over the artist. Um, 
But that's not the only sense of superiority in a way that's at work uh, we come to discover between uh, between Pascal and Agnes. Because as we get to know Agnes and get to know her, her life story, there also seems to be an element of class which is very much at play in the way that um, that her and Pascal interact with each other. Adam, thank you so much. This It was very touching to me to hear this, just because um, in my discussions about the book so far, this the idea of class has not once come up, uh-huh. and it was so important to me in, in writing it. And um, Agnes does marry into a different class than she came from, and Pascal is very oblivious to mm-hmm. class. He's uh, never met people from a working class background. And... Um, when he meets Agnes's family after, you know, they've been dating for a while, he's shocked and he's a little bit repelled mm-hmm. by them. Uh, and part of what Agnes is fed up with in the novel is the, the there's the superiority of, of rational thinking of the academic mind. There's also the superiority of Pascal's class mm-hmm. that she has always assumed is better than what she comes from and she has never challenged him on this topic she has never said why are you behaving like this to my parents um and i think this is part of the her unraveling in the novel Mm. her mother agnes said was one of those women who decorated every nook, especially in the season. The top of a television set and the washing machine, every shelf and corner. The house was crammed with cloths, baskets, dried flowers and trinkets, an array of objects meant to communicate the idea of a home. You know, she said, Pascal was shocked the first time he visited my family's house. She'd known it from his silence, his sudden reserve upon their arrival. The two of them had been living together for several months when they took the train to her hometown. By then, she'd allowed herself to believe that Pascal's admiration for her would never falter, no matter what else he might discover about her. When I asked, Agnes told me that the two of them had met at a cocktail party following a lecture. Agnes was there with other artists, but she stood somewhat apart from them because she didn't feel that she belonged to their group. Whereas Pascal had supposed This was because she was more refined, more confident. He told her this afterwards, and Agnes hadn't suggested that perhaps he was mistaken in his impression. I often have this effect on people, she said. I seem more self-assured than I really am. I'm told that I can be enchanting on first meeting, all the more so because I appear distant. She was looking at me intently. I kept silent and looked away. Anyway, Agnes continued, she told her parents nothing about Pascal except to say on the phone that she would bring him along on her next visit. Her mother had prepared the table in the dining room, reserved for guests instead of the kitchen. It was apparent that she had spent the previous day cooking. There was more food on the table than they could possibly manage to eat, some of it placed simply for the sight of plenitude. There is so much food, Pascal said, when he saw the table and it wasn't entirely clear whether he meant it as praise. It had never occurred to Agnes, not until then, that hospitality might be something to rein in, that it was pitiful to offer too much, to display your enthusiasm without restraint. When they sat down to eat, 
Pascal was sullen, answering her mother's questions br briefly before returning his attention to his plate. He was hesitant to talk about himself. Yes, he enjoyed his studies. No, he didn't see his parents very often. Agnes's mother cheerfully pressed on with her questions, pretending not to notice that Pascal resisted her interest. Her father was mostly silent and exceedingly polite. When Pascal went upstairs, Agnes told her parents that he was very shy. So it seems, her mother said, and her father said nothing. In fact, her father never said anything about Pascal in all the years that followed. When she told them a year later that they would get married, he asked only whether she'd thought it through. Upstairs, Pascal was lying stretched out on the bed. His suitcase was unopened on the floor. He hadn't even taken out the gifts he had brought for her parents. Agnes didn't ask him what he'd thought of them, and Pascal didn't offer any observations. He told her that he was puzzling over something he was preparing for a symposium. He couldn't work on it there, he said, without his books and a proper desk, and had decided to leave the following day after lunch, rather than staying the entire weekend as they'd planned. He went to bed early, after going downstairs to tell her parents that he was too full to eat dinner, as if eating were their only means of communication. I find it interesting to hear you say that nobody has mentioned it yet. Um, and <laughs> for fear of burning um, burning bridges, I wonder if in part that's because publishing and the book world is sort of shares this blindness to class often that... Um, that you, you just said that, that Pascal has. There's, I think unless you have had contact with working class people or come from a working class background, it can be almost sort of conceptually impossible to imagine or to, to, to conceive of the life that uh, the people from, from such backgrounds live. And I mean, you pitted class uh, against beauty, mm. uh, right? Um, I, I wouldn't say necessarily against each other, but I think, yeah, in the introduction, I yeah, I said it was about class and beauty. Mm -hmm. And I think definitely there are elements of people's, let's say, aesthetic understanding of, um, or understanding of aesthetics, which are deeply class influenced. Exactly. I mean, it's not the, you can't have beauty as a subject uh, in a vacuum, you, because beauty isn't a universal concept, um, and I think the the ideas of beauty in the book, mm -hmm. of a woman's beauty and taste and the apartment's beauty, these are all um, based on class. Even the works that Agnes are doing, she's taught herself to make beautiful works that are considered beautiful by the types of people who are looking at art. That's. In a sense, part of the the journey that she she is on as the as the book progresses, in a way, because she finds herself in a in a specific situation, not exactly one of desperation, but of things falling apart in a, in a particular way. Um, without wanting to to give too much too much away of what what actually happens, and that that collapse of certain reference points of certain elements of this life that she has built up almost in opposition to her background, in a sense, sends her back to it as well. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> I completely agree that is what happens. Um, one thing 
that you you alluded to earlier when we were talking about the narrator is that of course Pascal is an academic too. And when I was trying to visualize the relationships at work in in this book, I kind of in my mind I had a sense of a sort of a Venn diagram of yeah, half a dozen or maybe a bit more overlapping circles. So you have the narrator and Pascal as uh, academics. Um, we don't know too much more about the narrator and we'll talk about that uh, later, but that that's two, two perhaps overlapping circles in that Venn diagram. Then you have, of course, the, the physical proximity of Agnes and the narrator essentially living under the same roof. Um, then the relationship that develops between Agnes and the narrator in some way overlaps with the parent-child relationship that um, that Agnes has with her children and that her parents have with her. And so what, what, what sort of builds up for me is this, this sense of people, characters turning to each other for reflections of something that they have or haven't received from from the people around them does that make does that make sense yes exactly and i sort of think of the structure of the book as a series of um reckonings Mm -hmm. that agnes is coming to terms with her past Mm -hmm. and she is unraveling uh mentally and psychologically and as she does so she begins to understand the moments in her own life where she has been Mm -hmm cruel to others or she hasn't helped uh, others in need or she hasn't been empathetic Mm -hmm. and so I think because the Agnes's story is told in mostly monologues Mm -hmm. I did want those relationships to be doubled in the present moment through the narrator through Pascal through also the narrator's study of of nudity Mm -hmm. Let's 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 come back to that because I mentioned earlier that it really was one of the most fascinating aspects of the book. Firstly, I think because it's something I know almost nothing about the sort of the the gothic nude. Um, I miss. Well, I'll, I'll ask you straight out. Was it an area of interest for you that dates back a long time? Was it something that came to you as you were writing the book, and then you felt you had to research and find out more and sort of throw yourself into? The one thing I did know was uh, that I wanted the narrator's area of research to be in the Gothic field and purely for atmospheric reasons, because I I wanted to give the book a ghostly feeling without, you know, exactly writing a ghost story. I did want to establish that atmosphere of, you know, the the doubles and the sense of something missing. Um, And so that's why the narrator is... A medievalist and then I I began to think about what the narrator could mm-hmm. be researching I wanted I was thinking something like mourners mm-hmm. uh, in in medieval art and I thought this is qu- quite a common topic probably um, and I stopped myself from doing so because I think in Katie Kitamura's a separation the the narrator is researching mourners <laughs> And that, that's a book I adore. So I thought, you know, I, I can't take this much from it. <laughs> so I emailed a medievalist friend of mine. Yeah. 
and uh, and I said, what what could you what could be some potential topics? And he gave me a, a whole list of topics. And at the end, he said, there is also this one topic that was my dream mm -hmm. to write about as a PhD student, and I never wrote it, and it still hasn't been um, dealt with mm -hmm. in in academia. And it was Gothic nudes. Mm -hmm. There are not very many of them, and it, this became very mysterious to me that. Uh, you don't have many nudes in Gothic architecture, in Gothic sculpture, and when you do have them, they appear in such important moments of crossing from one world to another, in scenes of The Last Judgment, in, um, in scenes of Eden. Mm -hmm. So it's clearly a very important area. Um, and, you know, they've been they've been left nude for a very specific reason. Yeah. Uh, and then I, you know, of course, I'm not an academic, so I began to think about the metaphorical <laughs> possibilities <laughs> of, of uh, researching Gothic nudes. And the idea of nudity is um, central to the book in my mind, in the sense that um, there's a lot of attention paid to Agnes's clothing. Mm -hmm. And her clothes and her appearance go from very elegant and striking to quite disheveled mm -hmm. and, and disturbing. In the same way that her stories about herself mm -hmm. lose their poise as the book progresses. And I began to think of narratives or the stories about oneself as a type of clothing. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I thought of, you know, the, the psychological unraveling in the book um, I thought, how could I make that as a way in which Agnes is shedding her clothes and Agnes is shedding these stories and um, by coming to terms with her own past. Uh -huh. And at the end of the book, she will be standing uh, in some ways metaphorically nude in mm -hmm. front of the reader. That's that's really interesting. Just on the, on, the, on the subject of clothes, because, of course, that is also that it's a point at which, again, aesthetics and class and wealth intersect as well. Like the, the connotations of one's clothes are um, something which essentially displays uh, one's class, one's financial capacity, one's supposed taste uh, one way or the other, and also one's sense of belonging to uh, a, a group or a section of society. Exactly. And we we as the readers don't question when we first meet Agnes that her very striking appearance could be put together, or it could be calculated in uh -huh. some way. And throughout the book, we begin to learn all of about these intersections that you just mentioned and about the way that none of this, uh, that appearance isn't a neutral act uh -huh. and it doesn't come naturally to her, but that she has learned to to appear this way. And yet once those clothes are kind of cast off, once we have the nude, you don't then go for the sort of the straightforward metaphor of, uh, and we see Agnes naked, we see Agnes in all, you know, in, in her, in her truth. In fact, there's, there's still, I guess, in a similar way to uh, the, the narrator's area of study of the sort of the ambiguity about what the nude represents in Gothic art. There's also an ambiguity about 
what Agnes sort of ex- exposing her skin means in a way. Right, and it would be too simple to say that once Agnes uh, frees herself of this clothing, then she is uh, in a more desirable or a more beautiful state because she isn't, and she is. Um, it's I th- I think that Agnes, in fact, is difficult to sympathize with mm-hmm. at times. Uh, she's not, um, which again. I wanted to write so much about empathy and if empathy was something that we could provide, you know, easily and uh, and we did it lovingly and with joy, then it wouldn't be so difficult. Then, you know, the, the world would be an easier place to live in. And yet empathy and, and compassion require work. Um, and it's when Agnes becomes... And not a very nice person and she begins to behave in more problematic ways that's when the narrator i think withdraws uh compassion and and admiration towards agnes um so no it's not her process of becoming a nude is not such so straightforward i'd like to talk a bit about the narrator's interactions with agnes because there i think there i think there are definitely moments when Agnes uses the narrator as um, sometimes a surrogate for her husband, sometimes a surrogate for friends that she's known in the past and has lost, sometimes as a surrogate for her children. But the narrator's relationship to Agnes is not so easy for me as a re- was not so easy for me as a reader to to define and uh, and understand like what do you think is the underlying sense particularly at the beginning when uh, the narrator meets Agnes is it a is it a, a fascination with her that that allows the narrator to sort of to, to enter into this role of friend slash child slash companion there is I mean the I guess the the sense of unease for me is that they're neither friends nor are they strangers, mm-hmm. but they're strangers that have been put into a very intimate setting. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that creates its own sort of undefined sort of relationship. Yeah. And at the beginning of the novel, I would say that the narrator admires Agnes, mm-hmm. but it's not an admiration that, you know, d- just comes with that baggage mm-hmm. just because the narrator also needs to put up with Agnes and Agnes is the landlady. So yeah. the narrator can't just have pure admiration and, and leave a conversation when Agnes has talked too much. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's a sense of um, power dynamic mm-hmm. that's not um, very even. and But on the other hand, Agnes also is in a position both of power and vulnerability because she has chosen the stranger in her home mm. to tell her stories to. That's that's something I, I never really reflected on before, but that sense of power and vulnerability, just in the relationship between a, a landlady or landlord and the tenant, it, that generally when we think of a sort of a transactional relationship, we think of the one who is paying as the one with the power and the one who is selling as the one who is in some way vulnerable. But that's not really the case with when you when one is letting a place in fact because even though you are paying 
the the landlord or the landlady you don't necessarily feel in a position of of power over them it's uh yeah it's quite it's quite quite an ambiguous uh relationship in the same way that i think you know relationships are also transactions and you begin to see um in agnes's relationships that uh she has confused power dynamics in her own life yeah. and um she's never quite known where she stands whether she has the upper hand or whether she is vulnerable in a given situation yeah. one one thing that we find with agnes agnes in the um at the moment we meet her is that she's in quite a what might be called a giving mode the narrator on the other hand uh is written in a very sort of deliberately withholding manner it felt like you don't give us details well you don't give us the narrator's name you don't give us the uh the name of, of the city that that they're in you don't give us any from what i remember any physical description of the narrator we only really learn about the narrator through two things her relationship or the relationship with agnes and the subject of study the gothic nudes um, could you just talk a little bit about the sort of the authorial decision to withhold so much about uh, so or so much explicit detail, let's say, about the narrator? Uh, it, it it sort of went hand in hand with my decision to not name the city mm-hmm. uh, as a way of both heightening the sense of uh, ghostly atmosphere but also of allowing it to be a little less culturally specific. Mm -hmm. Um, And to talk about these concepts of of class and beauty in a larger setting than perhaps, you know, calling it, I don't know, Bruges or Rome or Paris Mm -hmm. might have um, limited it in some ways. And there is, and we, so I decided also that I would strip as many of the backgrounded formation from the narrator as I could, mm-hmm. uh, and just let Agnes be center stage mm-hmm. in the novel, and let Agnes's story seep into the blank forms of mm-hmm. the novel, and have her story be reflected in um, the characters surrounding her, and perhaps for those characters to take shape through Agnes. Mm. Um, Which isn't to say that then we don't imagine something for the narrator. Uh, Lots of people assume that the narrator is a woman, Mm -hmm. although I believe there aren't any specific um, indicators for why that might be so. But there is something interesting about why we would read the narrator as a woman, because this is a person who listens to hours and hours and hours of someone talking um, and who listens to very intimate stories. So I think perhaps the assumption is that women share such intimate stories with one another. Mm -hmm. It could also be the way in which the narrator observes the city, Mm -hmm. um, the the particular vocabulary, although none of those things are definitive. But it might be the sense of doubling as well, that um, we have Agnes and she is doubled in in so many things in the novel. And she sees her own doubles in the people in her past. Uh Um, So that's one of that might work. The narrator might be a mirror image of Agnes as well. Yeah, that's really interesting because I think um, I think I 
fell into that trap. I'm not saying you set us a trap, but I had the the idea that the narrator was a woman. I think I assumed that. But as you say, there's nothing specifically or explicitly stated to 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 make us think that. Uh, one of the reasons I suppose um, I made that reflection was for was on the subject of doubling, as you mentioned, because as you say, Agnes may see herself in the narrator, but also. She she talks a lot about her relationship with her daughter. And there was a part of me reading it, which I, I, I sometimes felt that Agnes was taking certain disappointments, one might say, in the relationship she has with her now adult daughter and sort of reworking them and retrying them with the narrator in a way. Definitely. And... I'm, one of the particular aspects of their relationship is that it's not—it's not a relationship with a name, as mm-hmm. I mentioned. It's not friend, uh-huh. it's not relative, mm-hmm. it's not child, and it's one of the the rare moments in Agnes's life that she's allowed to be herself mm-hmm. without being first and foremost a professor's wife, uh-huh. a wife, a mother. Mm-hmm. And yet she can't quite help herself. Mm-hmm. And she's trying to figure out how to um, how to be this person mm-hmm. who all of a sudden has no relationship to the narrator mm-hmm. and yet might be uh, inclined to act as a mother. She might be inclined to act as a caretaker. She's always bringing the narrator mm-hmm. gifts and always treating the, the narrator to cinema outings and you know treats from the market uh-huh. which which I, I thought was really interesting because that's actually one one of the moments where we do actually get a certain reaction from the narrator which is it's not really gratitude it's more a little bit almost sort of resentment and, a, and a maybe suspicion of these um, of these gestures as if they're they are being made to draw to draw the narrator into some sort of web Exactly, because then the more that you accept kindness or uh, gifts mm-hmm. from someone, the more you're expected to give back yeah. or the more you might be expected to mm-hmm. to have compassion towards that person mm-hmm. that I think the narrator isn't ready to, to give or wants to be in a position to, um, to be neutral mm-hmm. all the time and to not have to be tied to someone yeah. in need of help. Yeah. Just coming back to that idea of the um, the details of the narrator being withheld, um, one thing I find as a reader, and I had a similar um, reaction, for example, to the the trilogy uh, by Rachel Cusk, is that when details are withheld, it makes me all the more curious uh, to find the moments in the book when the narrator inadvertently reveals themselves. So, of course, we have Agnes's monologues, but they are as recounted by the narrator. Now, that then then raises the question, do we trust the narrator to recount them to us faithfully, to not put a specific spin on them based on how the um, the relationship with Agnes um I won't say concludes, but sort of comes to a, comes to a head. Let's say, um, was that something that was quite 
difficult to sort of to balance as you were writing, keeping this kind of this idea of Agnes as a person expressing herself, but mediated through this other rich human consciousness. I think what I found hardest was that Agnes was expressing herself so uh, fully as if, you know, some sort of lid had been opened in her consciousness and she couldn't stop herself from talking. Mm-hmm. And in response to this, the narrator was mute. Mm-hmm. And in the writing, I thought surely one would go up to Agnes and give her a hug right uh-huh. now <laughs> or, you know, offer some words or... Um, break this this restraint mm-hmm. and the narrator and here again I, i'm thinking about cruelty mm-hmm. as or restraint as a form of cruelty because the narrator never does anything wrong mm-hmm. or never does anything immoral if we were to see the situation from the outside uh-huh. that you could say this is the wrong thing to do you know you do not hit another person you do not swear at another person the narrator doesn't do any of those mm-hmm. things but just the restraint can be its own form of cruelty. Mm. And I, I did find that difficult and quite painful to, to continue yeah, yeah, as yeah. Agnes was in need of sympathy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think particularly coming back to the moment when she is talking about Pascal's reaction to her family and her family home and his very snobbish, judgmental uh, response to her parents who by all accounts are very decent, good people, or at least in the, the way that Agnes um, presents them. And I felt as a reader a certain sense of of sort of fury at Pascal. And that was one of the moments that I, I started wondering about the narrator, wondering if they perhaps shared Pascal's blind spots uh, about these subjects of class and these subjects of aesthetics, because the you know Agnes's sort of anger about about these 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 events from the past didn't meet with any as you say sort of uh kind words or or, or particularly sympathetic response i guess the one moment that the narrator has um a chance to to make this up is when we do encounter pascal later in the novel and pascal again offers the same sort of outpouring of um of backstory and uh, this determination to show the narrator um how he was mistreated in this marriage and i guess at least we can say that the narrator is equally restrained towards pascal and perhaps in that way protecting agnes yeah, a little yeah, yeah, bit yeah. That, that, yeah that strikes me as fair i uh, <laughs> I, I didn't think about that but that's true <laughs> which is you know a, a sort of an academic perspective mm-hmm. of um not being emotionally invested which yeah. i'm sure most academics would disagree but this is um sort of the the way uh, st- studies should be done mm-hmm. that you hold back emotionally and you consider what you are observing you say well it could be this Mm -hmm. or it could be this and and not step in to say this is the right thing to do or this is the wrong thing to do in the way that agnes is um asking from the world Mm -hmm. finally after so many years to take her side and to Mm -hmm. condemn pascal and um and what's happened to her as something wrong. That's that's interesting, that thought of the, the emotional response as well, because one of the other 
assumptions I brought to um, my my image of the narrator, and perhaps incorrectly, but I think as they're a graduate student or work, working on graduate studies, I assumed they were relatively young, perhaps kind of mid-twenties. And that's another reason I think that I saw the narrator as in some way a, a sort of a, a surrogate for, um, for Agnes's daughter, particularly. And one of the uh, underlying difficulties that Agnes has when she's talking about her family is a, a sort of an, an emotional generational gap particularly with her daughter. Like there's something about the way that her daughter responds to things and likes to talk about things and likes to draw Agnes into conversations that leaves Agnes feeling um, a little bit at sea, I suppose. There is also the the lack of connection the daughter has to Agnes's past. Mm. So Mm. they can, their point of connection therefore has to be this second life that Agnes has built and the life that the daughter has built for herself because the daughter has never spent time in Agnes's hometown she doesn't really know her grandparents very well she doesn't know the the uh, environment that her mother came from and I think Agnes in wanting to be a good mother but also in wanting her daughter to like her and um to need her, I, I would say. Uh, she has accepted all of her um, daughter's generational preferences and her daughter's um, extreme introspection and its self-involvement as things that feel strange to her and that feel maybe even egotistical to her. But she never has the courage to say this to her own daughter because she does she is um, egotistical in the same ways that she wants her daughter's admiration and she wants her daughter's um, love. It's a book that is in many ways about art and the artistic process and artistic development. And I realise that we've been talking for 40 minutes and have not really specifically talked about about art. I mean, we talked about the, the gothic nudes, but Agnes is an artist uh, she made a career as an artist and yet through artworks which in some ways when we find her she's kind of disowned as um, as inauthentic uh, in a way. Do you think that's a part of every artist development whether as a sort of a, a visual artist or as a writer to in their early years to want to 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 sort of squeeze oneself into the mold of the idea of the artist you think you should be uh i mean i I do think that the process of creation begins with imitation Mm -hmm. that you're so moved by another artwork uh another book Mm -hmm. another poem a painting whatever it is that you want to make it for yourself Mm -hmm. as well and that you want to make something so beautiful in the world to be looked at and therefore you're using those inspirations the thing that moved you Um, and the more you do so the more you develop your own style and voice Um, I think in the case of Agnes she thinks of her early works as inauthentic for the reasons we talked about Mm -hmm. that she was trying so hard to fit into a certain class and to us within a certain aesthetic that she didn't quite consider who uh, she was and what her own voice and style might be and in the process of the book that's in some ways what she's doing and 
in the same way that beauty doesn't exist in a vacuum, I think art doesn't exist in a vacuum. You don't just produce art from like the, the, the depths of your soul. It is in response to a social setting. And as she is, as those, um, the value of those social settings or Agnes's contracts with those social settings are crumbling in the book, her art also comes to a stall and she no longer know what's, what, knows what to make mm -hmm. because she doesn't know which of it has real inherent value for her and which of it is something that she's learned. Yeah. And that leads to a, quite a sort of a fascinating point in her process, which is almost like meditation, it feels like. Um, so you write, most of her recent work, she said, was formed around attaining stillness letting the residue sift through until she obtained a blank mental state. Um, and I thought that was really interesting, the idea of like the work not necessarily being the, the painting or the creation itself, but the, the, uh, the process of attaining the, the state that might allow her to paint. Yes, this um, idea, you might be, I'm sure you do this yourself in, in writing, that coming to a moment of extreme concentration where you allow whatever it is to rise to the surface mm -hmm. and not be cluttered by other thoughts and obligations that or preferences mm -hmm. that are trying to make their way into your mind. But then, of course, what happens in the case of Agnes is that she's practiced this uh, meditative state of stillness in her own art and now she finds that what's rising to the surface is all of these things that she's um, stifled for so many years yeah. and which she um yeah does give expression to I'm, I'm going to speak very carefully in quite a quite a startling way as the um as the as the book advances in my notes i i noted down as two sentences one at the very beginning and one at towards the end, which I believe were word for word identical sentences with each other. And that that sentence was, in the year that I lived there, I had the sense of having stepped inside another life. And one thing that startled me, I suppose, as I was going back through my notes, was the, the way that that sentence resonates differently when you're at the um, at the beginning of the book uh, and at the end of the book. Yes, and it's not, I think, just that sentence, but the the paragraph that precedes it about the apartment and uh, the, the light in the apartment in the morning and mm -hmm. how that appeared to the narrator. At the beginning of the book, there is so much a sense of possibility and anything could happen and uh, there could be such a beautiful year ahead. Mm -hmm. And uh, the sense of being a stranger in a strange city mm -hmm. is a joyful feeling that you can take on anything. But then when you encounter it, the, the same paragraph and the same description of the apartment mm -hmm. at the end of the novel, so much has changed. And there is a sense of a ghost passing um, and you know, the, the doubling that we talked about. But there is also the sense that... Um, it's not the stranger now no longer has the right to be a stranger. Mm -hmm. After um, having been witness to so much, uh, this stranger must take a position mm -hmm. and yet has remained a stranger yeah. in a strange city. And quite exactly what that stranger has 
borne witness to, we'll leave our readers to um, discover. Um, White on White is, of course, available from Shakespeare and Company, uh, from our website, of course, and um, from your local neighbourhood independent bookstore, wherever that may be. Um, all that remains for me to say is, Aishagul Savash, thank you so, so much for joining us today. Thank you, Adam. Thanks for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Biles. Since you've made it this far, I hope that means you've enjoyed what you've heard and will consider rating us in whatever app you're using. The theme music is Mr Ginger by the incredible jazz musician Alex Fryman, taken from his album Play It Gentle. I'll be back next week. Until then, take care, happy reading, and thanks again for listening.